Hello and welcome. You've tuned into the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. Later you will be given information how to reach us. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. Soterology is the study of salvation. We're talking about difficult passages, and today we're talking about something in particular that seems to be within missionary Baptist churches. That's why I feel like it's important for this church and others that may be listening to understand this particular topic. We've already talked about general aspects of salvation, where the saved of the Old Testament went when they died. We talked about the election. We took three weeks looking at election, talked about security of the believer. Can we just give up our salvation? Can it be lost? Today, we're talking about our saints only in a New Testament church. And then, Lord willing, next week, we'll talk about whether or not baptism is essential for salvation. And then we'll look at scriptures also that talk about baptism for the dead. As always, we say if you have questions about Bible passages, we want to know. We want you to contact us through Facebook or by email. You can let us know if there are questions that you have about different Bible passages. We'll take some time and we'll examine those in light of the context and other scriptures. The question before us today is, are saints only in the church? What are those implications? What does that mean? How does that apply to all of us? First, we have to define what we mean when we talk about church. This is the way I understand it, that because we're going to see how Protestants, and of course, we are not Protestants. So that's why I think it's important for us first to understand what we're saying when we say our saints only in the church, because we mean something different than what other Protestants or especially Catholics would hold to. So the doctrinal statement of the Landmark Church says that we believe, this is about the church, we believe that Jesus Christ has established his church during his ministry on earth that it is always a local, visible assembly of scripturally baptized believers in covenant relationship to carry out the commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And each church is an independent, self-governing body, and that no other ecclesiastical body may exercise authority over it. We believe that Jesus Christ gave the Great Commission to the New Testament churches only, and that he promised the perpetuity of the churches. That's found on the church website under what we believe. There are many, many scriptures. I just clicked on those so that you can see just a few of the scriptures that establish these truths. So it's well backed up by the word of God. There are a few missionary Baptist pastors that hold that saints can only be found in the church. This means that all other Christians, if not members of a scriptural New Testament church, are not saints. There's a big implication there. And I think that that's something that necessarily has to be uh, reckoned with 
in our day and age because many young men now will just think that, well, I believe in the New Testament church, so sure, saints are only found in the church, and they're not thinking this through. They're not looking at the implications. That's why we're going to examine these tonight. It's argued that missionary Baptist churches and other scriptural New Testament churches will make up the bride of Christ and have the new covenant kingdom of Christ Jesus. Now, I I believe that from the scriptural churches, the Lord is going to make up his bride. I think that that's where those people in that covenant relationship are going to come from. However, others are taking this to an extreme. They're taking this new covenant kingdom and saying there is now an outer darkness, that those are not in this covenant relationship are not in the new Jerusalem. They're outside of that. They're in outer darkness. Well, maybe that's another topic we should get into because that outer darkness is definitely equated with hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and eternal fire where the worm dieth not. So it cannot be that those that are in the kingdom uh, and those that are outside the kingdom, those that are outside the kingdom are not saved. So maybe that's something we could talk about in a future study. But it does have implications here. Because it's further argued that the term saint is applied to members of specific churches mentioned in the New Testament. And if you look at especially Paul's writing to the churches, oftentimes he'll say to the saints which are at Rome or something to that effect. The strongest argument, I think, of those that hold this teaching, and that's why I want to I want to be honest, their strongest argument is that the term saints is usually found in the plural, which means that they're a group, and the word is used to address the recipients of those particular epistles. Now, it is true, the recipients are those that were spoken of in Paul's epistles, uh, but not all of Paul's epistles, and we're going to talk about then the general epistles. And so, this is taken to mean then, if they hold to that, to be a saint, one must be united or working collectively within a scriptural church. Now, I think that that's a good thing. I think we need to be working in one of the churches. But that's not what makes you a saint. So, we'll examine the scripture to see if that's really a viable argument. But first, we have to define our terms. We have to define our term, what is a saint? We've just defined what is a church. A church is always a local body of baptized believers covenanted together to carry out the Great Commission. So what is a saint? Well, the word saint comes from the Greek word in the New Testament, hagios, and that means consecrated to God, holy, sacred, or pious. It's almost always used in the plural as saints, For example, in Acts 9 and 13, it says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. So there's an idea where they were plural. We can also see where Peter in Acts chapter 9, verse 32, now as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydia. There's also 
this position that the Apostle Paul spoke of in Acts 26 and verse 10. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up it, many of the saints in prisons. So there it is true. The word saints is used in the plural form. There's only one instance of the singular, and that is found in Philippians 4 and 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. In Scripture, there are 67 times that the plural word saints is used as compared to this one singular word of saint. Let's define our terms. In Strong's definition of the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word hasid, and it means, and most of the time, it's translated as properly or kind, pious, religiously pious, or a saint, a godly man, good, holy one, merciful, or sometimes it's used in the negative as ungodly. In the authorized King James Version, 32 times it's translated as saints, uh, three times as holy, three times as merciful, godly as used twice, good or good man, holy one. In that instance, it's speaking of the incarnate Christ or holy one and ungodly. Those are used one time each. There's also a, a similar word that's used and translated as faithful, kind, godly, holy one, saints, pious, or kind. And that's uh, the strong definition 3808. So you can check on those, 2623 in Strong's or 3808. Those are the Old Testament definitions for a saint. In defining our terms, the Strong's definition in the New Testament for Hagion, as we said, the definition is found in number 39. 40 times it's used in the neuter. That means that it's talking about a sacred thing, such as a place, a spot, as the holiest of all or the holy place, the sanctuary. So oftentimes the word is used in that, and that's in the authorized version. 11 times it's used, four times it's used of sanctuary, Three times it's translated holy place, three times as holiest of all, and then holiness. The idea of that in Strong's definition is that it's reverend, worthy of veneration of things which on account of some connection with God possesses a certain distinction and claim to reverence as places sacred to God which are not to be profaned of persons whose services God employs. For example, apostles are set apart for God, as it were, exclusively to be his servants. So that's what Strong's is saying in regard to what a saint is or what that term hagion, holy, means. It's also spoken of as offerings prepared for God that have some kind of a solemn rite, the, those things which are pure, those things which are clean. That's important. We're going to be looking at that and how that applies to the life of the child of God, to the saint. So in a moral sense, it talks about being pure, sinless, upright, and holy. That's the way our lives ought to be. And when we set things aside for God, they are made holy in that sense. 
There's an online definition that I found that speaks to this. The idea of the word saints is a group of people set apart for the Lord and his kingdom. There are three references referring to godly character of saints. That's why I like this definition. It talks about the character of saints. He says in Romans 16, 2, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. Also, Ephesians 4 and 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And also in Ephesians 5 and verse 3, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So you see, the idea of being a saint is being wholly set apart, not allowing the impurities of the world, and we're going to examine this a little more fully, what that means in our sanctification. So in defining our terms, Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words says this. It says, Sainthood is not an attainment. It is a state into which God, by grace, calls sinful men. Believers are then called to sanctify themselves consistently with their calling, 2 Timothy 1 and 9, cleansing themselves from defilement, forsaking sin, living in a holy manner of life, 1 Peter 1, 15, 2 Peter 3, 11, and experiencing fellowship with God in his holiness. In contrast to what we've just seen in those definitions, especially what Vines just said, Vine said it is not an attainment, it was the work of God. So in contrast, becoming a church member is an attainment by one who has sanctified himself to follow the Lord in baptism and take up with him the yoke of service that the Lord has called us to. So that's something that we do. That is an attainment, that it takes human effort. As opposed to being a saint, takes no effort. It's not a work. Salvation is the ultimate move of God on one's life. And it's essential that sanctification is that continuing part that grows out of the Lord saving us. So limiting sainthood to church members and church membership contradicts scripture. Let's see how that's so. Hebrews 10 and 14. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Therefore, he is continuing to work. He is continuing to mold us because we that's part of our sanctification, part of our salvation. So a person's saving experience joined with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit fixes that settles their standing as being sanctified children of God or saints. Very simple. Both the Old and New Testaments use that title, the saints. So it's not something that's just exclusive to the New Testament or the New Testament church. It speaks about the covenant people of God, Israel and the Lord's churches. But the word is always used, except for that once, used in the plural sense, speaking of God's people. But think about this. In order for there to be a plurality of saints, individuals first must be sanctified. So it has to be the individual. If you're going to have the plural, 
then first individuals must be sanctified. And pushing this usage to conclude that only church members are saints really now begins to create conflict with the harmony of Scripture and other Bible doctrines. That's what we're going to examine. 1 Samuel 2 and 6 is the first time the word in the Old Testament for saints is used in the Bible. And I wanted to throw this in because we see the contrast. Let me read that. 1 Samuel 2, 6 says, He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. See the contrast between two classes of people. You have the saints and the wicked. Again, Scripture's clear. There's two great classes of people in the world. Matthew 13, 38. In the Lord explaining the parable of the wheat and the tares, he says the sons of the kingdom and there are the sons of the wicked ones. Christ made it very, very clear what he was talking about. Two classes of people. You are either saved or lost. You're a son of the kingdom or you're a son of the wicked one. There's no in-between. So if a man is not saved, if he's not a believer, if he's not been perfected forever and being sanctified by the Spirit of God within him, he cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Baptism does not make one a saint. Just because he could be baptized and then be a member of the church, he is not a saint unless he has been born again and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can do that work. Another conflict with Bible doctrines, limiting the saints to church membership, is the logical inference of baptismal regeneration, that somehow baptism has done something that is beyond what the Bible talks about. Now, baptism is the answer of a good conscience. Baptism is an important thing. Baptism is a step of obedience, but it does not bring about that sanctification. That's from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, where God is continuing to work in a person's life. Very, very different. And if we infer that baptism and joining a church begins to bring about bringing us into sainthood, watch out. Watch out. That was an ancient Catholic doctrine that Satan has just been trying to promote and rise up again in this day and age. Still another conflict with Bible doctrine by limiting saints to the church is the inference that the Lord's church is some kind of a universal invisible body to which all the Christians belong. Some of these that think they're going farther into New Testament church and believing only in a local church, they're really falling into another pitfall that they don't understand that it's going to lead them into a universal church. Let me explain. All Christians are born into the family of God, not into the church, not some universal invisible body. Saved people are added, and the New Testament always talks about that, they were added to a specific local church. Now, Protestants today define the saints as the body of Christ, Christians, the church. All Christians are considered saints. Now, I agree with that. All Christians are considered saints, but not saints. Saints are not all 
automatically in the church. So all Christians are saints and at the same time are called to be saints. That is true. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 states it clearly, it says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. So the words sanctified and holy come from the same Greek root as the word that is commonly translated saints. Christians are saints by virtue of their connection with Christ Jesus. Christians are called to be saints to increasingly allow their daily life to more closely match their position in Christ. This is a biblical description and calling of the saints. That's the definition by R.C. Sproul. He gave that definition of what a saint is. Well, we agree with some parts of that. He's, that is somewhat true. However, Protestants believe that once you are born again, you are in the church, this universal invisible body. Now, that was a heresy we talked about some time ago that really had its roots in Augustine, that he got that started. Protestantism has carried that on. Catholicism has a little different idea about sainthood, but their idea also is you have to be in the church, the Roman Catholic Church, to become a saint. He does bring up a good point in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, because that addresses, it says, to the church of God which is at Corinth, but it's followed by the expression, to the ones sanctified in Christ Jesus called saints. I want you to see that it is you are sanctified by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus, and now we are called saints. Has no connection with being baptized or a member of the church. So before one can stand in a spiritual union with Christ, he must have been sanctified, created in Christ Jesus under good works by the Holy Spirit. He has to have done that before he can enter into church membership, before he can come as a candidate for baptism. So spiritual regeneration is not of works, but is completely by grace through faith a work that only God, the Holy Spirit, does. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, addressing the same people that we were talking about a moment ago, said to be sanctified, they were called saints. Now he's telling them in verse 9, you are washed, you are sanctified. So means saint. You are justified. So those three clauses are of equal rank, and equally true of the people that are addressed. They were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified. I think that's important for us to have the right understanding of sanctification making us saints. Second Thessalonians 2, 13 talks about this again. We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit, and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That scripture just really refutes Calvinism, and it speaks about because your belief in the truth, the gospel, Paul's saying here to the church at Thessalonica, that they believed in the gospel, that truth, and by that they were sanctified, and that God had chosen this method for salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you become a saint? By 
believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, being born again, and following the gospel. All right, Philippians 4.21. That was the one place where it's used in the singular. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. And then verse 22 says, All the saints greet you, but especially those of Caesar's household. So again, I think that that's an important understanding for us. I think that's very evident in what we're talking about. Now let's think about the general epistles. The general epistles were written to various people, and most of these talks about they had been scattered by persecution. Example, 1 Peter 1 and verse 1, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. Then he goes on in verse 2 and calls them elect and sanctified in the Spirit. So that's the critical thing that he is talking to these people. We don't know if they were a member of a church. They had been dispersed. We don't know where they were, but he said they were saints, sanctified in the Spirit. And also James 1 and 1 talks about to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Now, I do believe that these people were members of churches that they had formed. They had gone everywhere bringing about churches. And I think they were serving the Lord. We need to serve the Lord through one of the New Testament churches. But that's not what makes you a saint. In 2 John 2 and 1, he talks about the elder to the elect lady and her children. So in all of these areas, we see that they were speaking to people who were born again, They had followed the Lord in scriptural baptism. By being born again, they were saved. And I think they were serving through New Testament churches. However, that's not what made them a saint. Just as in the Old Testament, just being an Israelite did not make them a saint. It was their position of trusting the Lord. And so, to make the argument that one becomes a saint when he's joined with other saints in the true New Testament church really destroys these foundational truths of salvation by grace. It destroys the truth of sanctification, how we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and he is moving us to grow in grace. And then it destroys the image of baptism and what baptism is really teaching. It destroys the doctrine of the local church. These are crucial, and that's why I believe this is an important lesson for us to be assured of, to know, because this is what our forefathers taught. This is what has been believed by our Baptist forefathers and been taught since the beginning of the New Testament churches. And we want to hold to that faith that was once delivered to the saints. Well, thank you, brother. Next week... We ask the question, is baptism essential for salvation? I hope that this has made it very clear for you. I hope that it's helped you in some way. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the message. We trust you've been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions on this or other topics, please see our contact information in the description or email us at sclministry of ministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.